Uh, it is a delight to be able to open up God's word with this faith family. We're going to be starting off a series called Sacred Garden. And we're going to be going through the Song of Solomon. And uh, I don't know about you, but love songs really just, they just have a way of gripping our hearts, don't they? I mean, Etta James, she sings, right, the iconic, At Last My Love, right? And, and that song that plays at so many weddings, I think about so many other songs that just kind of like captivate our hearts. Kings of Leon sang a song called Sex is on Fire. There's no uh, hiding what that song is about, actually. Um, it's pretty obvious right up front uh, in, in the title. Uh, but there's so many songs, so many love songs that just grip our hearts. I think about Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody, the classic rock ballad of the 80s, You Shook Me All Night Long, and of course the classic by the Hanson Brothers, Mbop. Can I get an amen, right? Um, but see, love songs have a way of just grabbing our attention and making our hearts beat fast and saying things so eloquently and so poetically uh, that just really kind of make it count and make it matter. So I wanted to share with you just this morning a couple of statistics and a couple of figures that are quite staggering when it comes to the numbers behind love songs. So first number for us this morning is this number, 100 million. 100 million. So I want you to hold that in mind. Here's the second number, 64.5%. 64.5%. So these two numbers are quite staggering when we consider that they comprise the songs that came out just last year by Taylor Swift alone, okay? <laughs> Unbelievable. No, obviously only kidding. Uh, this is actually the number of songs in all of recorded history. As long as we have like a way to see writing that was preserved in any way, a uh, hundred million songs are written about love. Uh, nearly 65% of all of the songs that we have recorded are written about love. But the question is, why? Why is it so disproportionate? Why are there so many love songs being written? It's because God made us for intimate relationship. He created us for that. Why are there so many love songs, whether they're sappy or profound or like way too explicit? Why are there so many? It's because we're made for love. And, and in fact, the Bible actually tells us that the very first song that was ever sung was actually a love song. And it was sung by the very first man, Adam, and he sung it to his wife. It was the first words that he ever spoke to her were actually written as a poem, as a song. And when he saw Eve, as God presented Eve to Adam, he sang a song, right? Love songs touch our hearts in a way that nothing else can because love, an intimate, passionate love, is something that God gave us as a good gift. And this series is trying to reclaim all of, all of the intent and design that God has for sex and sexuality. And so what we want to do is we want to actually understand uh, what it is that God has, would guide us in through the Song of Solomon. And so over the next nine weeks, we're going to be walking through the Song of Solomon, and we're going to be looking at God's design, his, his purpose, his intent, and really a how-to guide in regards to courting and dating and relationships, marital advice, and also intimacy and passion within the, within the context of marriage. But before we really jump in and start to dig in, I kind of want to address uh, really just who this book is for. Um, I think we've heard from some different people, different elders have heard, uh, hey, is there something being offered somewhere else because sex and sexuality doesn't apply to me? So if you're a human being, yes, it does. God has made you a sexual being. He's made you a sexual creature, and this applies really to everyone. How do I know that? Look at the verse on the screen. Hebrews 13, 4 says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. 
for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So here's the thing. There's a command in this passage. It says, let the marriage, let marriage be held in high honor by some people in some places at some times. No, it doesn't. It says all. That means everyone. Everyone who this letter is written to, the book of Hebrews, it says, let it be held in honor among all. And then specifically, it isn't just marriage. Uh, it says, let the marriage bed, again, sex and sexuality, be undefiled. It's a call for purity. Even within the confines of marriage, there's an impure way to behave. And, and so the writer of Hebrews is saying, we not only need to hold this, all of us hold it in high honor, but we also need to be keeping the marriage bed undefiled. So the question then for is, if it's for all of us, right, how is it for all of us? So there's three specific categories of people who are in this room. This is parents, singles, any form of single, teen, young adult, widowed, divorced, any form of single, and also couples, dating, engaged, uh, or married. Okay, so this is for these three categories of people. This book is written for all believers to learn from and to be, to be brought to a place where we understand understand both its sacredness and the power of intimate, passionate love within the context of marriage. So for parents, uh, one author who speaks to teens and parents on the topic of sex and sexuality says this, I've never met a parent who's regretted speaking too much about sex to their kids, but I have met far too many who have said they wish they'd spoken more to their kids about sex. So your kids have questions, they're curious, and they're either going to find answers from God or from Google. That's, that's just how that works. Or from groups of friends and peers around them. They are going to look for answers. And trying to suppress that is only going to lead to more harm. And here's the thing. I don't know about how many of you uh, have ever had this experience, but it is the least exciting and least arousing conversation you could have to have your parents sit you down and talk to you about sex. All right? So if you're worried about that, don't be. Right? They won't be. They'll be mortified somewhat, but you need to guide them in God's truth. So for parents, here's what you need to understand. Those questions and those concerns in their minds only grow in silence, right? So parents who remove the explicit voice of truth about sex from the word will only allow the explicit lies of the world, world to fill the void. You may think you have a choice, but again, if you think back to your childhood and the ways that you learned information... We need to have God's word from godly parents guiding our children through this. So for parents, it applies. Uh, for singles, whether you're a teen or a young adult, whether you're widowed or divorced, this book should either bring healing and healthy perspective, or it should give you the freedom to engage in open conversation with those around you. Even if you aren't actively engaged in a relationship, you either have wisdom to offer or hope to gain from this book. So the, the way I want you to think about this is if you're in that season of life, you have hope to gain if you've had broken relationships in the past and you have help to offer if you are someone who has been widowed or you are a widower. You have help to offer. How does that work? Well, if you think about a coach, a coach has experience, but they're not in the game. So even if you're, you're not actively engaged, you can still provide encouragement, support, wisdom, and guidance. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes to the church, and he says, older men, older women, you need to actually pour down into those who are younger than you. Uh, so, so that's the call for those of you who are in that context as a single. You have hope to gain or help to offer. Uh, for couples... Uh, dating, engaged, or married, this song and these songs that are sung 
by the Song of Solomon should be a song that calls you up to live in the pursuit with the character and into the passion of love and to see sex as good, not gross, and not as a God to be worshiped, but as something that God has made for our joy and for our enjoyment. So the Song of Solomon, what is it? It's a collection of songs. We can think about it almost as a Cinderella story that's being written and told by an older couple as they look back throughout their entire married lives. And just like songs in the seasons of life that we have them, you ever have a favorite song and when you hear it, it just remi- you, you remember a summer or you remember like around Christmas time, we have all of these songs that we remember. Songs connect us to our past and they bring great memory and depth of relationship to us. And so this older couple who's looking back throughout their life King Solomon and and the Shulamite, his wife, they're looking back and these songs are reminding them of different portions of their marriage. And so when we look at this, the question we have to ask is, what is the book itself and how are we supposed to interpret it? There's a tension point between understanding this as allegory and over-spiritualizing it or as being so explicit that you make it uh, it so awkward and so tense. And I've seen abuses on both ends. For much of church's history, for much of the church's history, we have seen this allegorized. And, it, and its relevance is really only spiritualized to the point where you say really awkward things about Jesus and his church if you catch my drift. All right? So if you heavily allegorize it, you don't come away at, with it as a guide that is helpful for us to understand how it is that we're to live in relationship, one man, one woman with one another. And so what is it? Here's what it is. It, it's realist poetry. That's what it is. It's poetry. It's meant as similes. There's metaphorical language that's utilized, which is helpful because some of what we're going to get into is steamy and really hot, and it's great that it's metaphorical. You don't want it to be 100% one-to-one. But it gives, it couches all of this intimate passion in incredibly profound terms that draw it away from being profane into being sacred something that blesses its hearers. And that's exactly what it is. It's realist poetry and it's not allegory. So what I'm, gonna, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna invite you to turn to Song of Solomon chapter one. We're gonna look at the first six verses this morning. Song of Solomon chapter one, verses one through six. And this morning, as you find your place there, I'll just mention this is kind of a boy meets girl situation. Uh, I love hearing stories about how couples met. It's one of the one of my favorite things to ask when Andrew and I are doing counseling or we're doing, you know, just meet, meeting new couples. It's like, hey, how did you guys meet? Um, it's one of the things that I love because it provides a lot of context for understanding the relationship, right? Some are fun, some grow over time, some are more like crazy meeting points. But but this is the thing that when we get into this entire section, this is a boy meets girl situation. And we're going to hear from the voice of the woman speaking praises about the man that God has brought into her life. So if you found your place in Song of Solomon chapter 1, I'm going to invite you to stand this morning as I read God's word for us. Here at Grace, we stand out of reverence and respect for the word of God, believing that all of scripture, even the Song of Solomon, is given to us for our full life of faith and living. So here's what it says. Chapter 1, verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. 
I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Qatar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. This is God's word. You may be seated. And before we jump into this passage, let me, let me pray. All right, let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning grateful for your word. It is a light unto our path. Father, we thank you that all of your word speaks to all of our lives. And I just pray, Jesus, that by the power of your spirit this morning, you would comfort those who are here who need comfort, Lord, from past wounds and hurts, whether it was through their own sinful participation or from something that was committed against them as a sin. Lord, I speak to those this morning, and I ask for your spirit, Lord, to convict those, Lord, who have who have bought into the lies of the world and have lived into the pattern of the world with their sex and their sexuality. Lord, I pray this morning that you would fill me by the power of your spirit, that I would be clear as I speak your truth this morning. And spirit, I just pray that you would work within all of us, that you would exalt yourself among us, Jesus, this morning, that, that as we go forward, we would see your kingdom built in light of what we learn about you this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, so this morning, as we walk through this passage, we're going to see six ways of being the man of her dreams. Six ways of being the man of her dreams. Again, we hear the woman begin. She starts off right out of the gate. It gets hot immediately. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. This starts right off. And at the beginning, the number one way that we see, the first way we see, is actually working on your physical appearance. Working on your physical appearance. That's the first step. There is a physical attraction that is, that is an element of every relationship. There is an attractiveness about the other person physically. And we see this. Kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. Now, for us, this sounds a little awkward. It's like, what else is he going to kiss <laughs> with? Uh, what? So in this time and in this culture, they used to, you think about butterfly kisses, right? It was a form of kissing. In this, in this culture, they actually used to kiss by rubbing nose together at times, Right? I wouldn't suggest doing that today. You know, you might get a couple of stares. But she's calling for him to kiss him in an intimate and an affectionate way, in a romantic way. Why? It's because the guy is hot. She really likes him. He's a hunk. He's a stud. He's a dude. Whatever the term is today, he's that, right? She wants him. She wants him in an intimate way. So she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. The Song of Songs, again, is a collection of songs. And it's a really, it is a Cinderella story. You have two shepherd people. You have a shepherd boy and a shepherd girl, and they meet one another. And we're going to see this progress throughout the, the entire book. They meet one another, and then he goes off. She can't find him. And then when she ends up coming to him, she recognizes, oh my goodness, the shepherd boy who I fell in love with uh, is none other than the king, King Solomon. And what we find is that she actually goes through mistreatment with her family. She's a keeper of the vineyards. She's kind of a country bumpkin, all right? So that's what's gonna, that's what we're gonna see play out throughout the entire book. So the Cinderella story that we're all used to, and that's the Bible did it first, all right? And did it best. And everything else is an iteration of that. She wants him, uh, and what we see from, from the beginning point, again, their relationship goes from zero to 100, but we only see that immediately because of the physical attraction, all right? She, he's physically attractive. She wants him. She's interested in him. She, he catches her eye, and she desires to have him kiss her. It's very forward, right? But here's the thing. She likens his love to, to wine. 
That's, that's, the, that's the other thing that makes, him, makes us know that he's, she's physically attracted to him. Number one, she wants him. She wants him to kiss her. And number two, his love is like wine. His love is like wine. Uh, country music star Morgan Wallen, can I get a shout out? Woo, woo, anyone? No, all right. Um, Chris Stapleton. All right, so Tennessee whiskey. Need I say more? That song is about love, and it likens love and intoxication to alcohol, all right? Throughout this book, you're going to see that intoxication and being intoxicated is likened to love consistently. As a matter of fact, in chapter 5, it says, the chorus says, run away, friends, and get drunk with wine of love, right? So here's the thing. This series is called Sacred Garden, but I want to be very clear the intoxication that, that's being talked about within a relationship context is exactly what God has designed for within the confines of marriage, okay? When two people meet one another and they're interested, as the emotions progress, it's almost like undercurrents. If you think about how currents work, you got two boats on the top of water, the undercurrents are pulling together. As the emotional relationship builds, the two boats on the top are going to feel that current pulling and they're going to want to bump into one another at some point, all right? So that's already happening here. And the love that the love that he's talk, she's talking about here very explicitly is sexual intimacy within the confines of marriage. There's a few different ways that Hebrew actually translates love. There, and this right here is love within the confines of marriage. It's intimate, passionate love. She wants to kiss him. She says, your love is like wine. And what we're talking about in, in, in likening it to wine is a powerful toxin that overtakes the body. Uh, and this is what we see in couples when they meet one another and they start to engage in relationship together. Dudes can start acting weird. Girls can start acting weird. Uh, we were just watching a few weeks ago, the Santa Claus too. And Charlie Calvin, who's Santa Claus's son, starts talking about this girl. We were just friends. And then the next thing I know, I started to worry about what I dressed like in front of her. And the next thing I know, I started to do weird things in front of her, say weird things. And we were acting dumb, right? Just like wine can make you look and act dumb relationships and how they interact can actually make you this way. And here's what's crazy. As I was researching this, it turns out that chemists and scientists have actually called something the kissing cocktail. So I want you to just think about kissing. If you don't think it's that big of a deal, here's what I want to submit to you this morning. It is. Why? Three different chemicals are released even when you begin to kiss somebody, right? In an intimate way. Adrenaline, oxytocin, and serotonin. And those three chemicals together chemists call the kissing cocktail. That's a chemist looking in a beaker and saying it's a cocktail. The, the word of God is speaking specifically to how God has designed us and wired us. It's like wine. There's an intoxication that happens when you're in relationship together. So if you don't know that when you kiss, your body actually releases these chemicals to interact in this crazy explosion of emotion where you just start beginning to not think very rationally, it's a thing, and this is exactly what she's talking about. His love is like wine. The Bible is not shy about sex or wine, and yet often we are because of the mishandling of it or because we don't believe it can be appropriately handled. All of God's word is for all of us, once again. And attraction happens at a chemical level. This is a way that God has drawn, designed us to be drawn together in relationship together as one man and one woman. So his appearance draws her in and his love creates this intoxicating bond. And this is why we, again, we start doing weird things when we interact with one another. When I met my wife, Andrea, 
I forgot where I was from. I, I held open the door for her. And when I held open the door for her, I held the door open like this. This is the first time we met. And she's standing there, and the, the hallway's over here. And so like London Bridges, she went under my arms and into the hallway, right? And I was like, I, I'm not telling a soul about this. And here I am now telling an entire room full of people, right? But you start acting, and my back started sweating. I didn't even know my back ever sweat. Like, I pit it out. It was like, what happened, you know? But your body just starts to do weird things, and that's the way that God has designed it intentionally. And so what we need to understand is to embrace that, to harness it, rather than to subvert or suppress it, okay? So God has made us in this way. She sees that. She desires it. She wants it. As a matter of fact, it's so crazy the way that we interact, and it's so consistent in the way that it talks about wine and drunkenness in this book that I almost called the entire series Love Drunk. And then I remembered that we do have Baptists in the title of our church, Grace Community Church Baptist. And I thought, bad idea. So Sacred Garden it is, all right? <laughs> but again, the point is to understand that just like things can become taboo, because we don't understand them. We need to unpack God's word in order to rightly live into the truth and into the joy of intimate passion that he's designed us for and called us into, okay? So it's not only that she wants him, she wants to kiss him, his love's better than wine, but he also smells good. Again, guys, work on your appearance. If you're not attractive, right, some guys need to just figure it out. Go get a job. That's attractive, right? Move out of your mom's basement. That's super hot, dude right? Quit playing video games. It's time to grow up. Like, hot, all right? And smell nice. That should be like, like A1A for becoming uh, the man of her dreams. Like, you shouldn't stink, all right? But here's the thing. I was a youth pastor. So I just, I've been on mission trips with teenage boys. It doesn't come natural to the mind of a, a young man that they might stink, all right? Some of you who've moved out of adolescence and into adulthood, you might need this. So as a public service announcement and as a public service to all of the women in here, guys, I don't care if you're dating, engaged, or married, you probably stink most of the time. So figure it out, all right? Work out, put on some cologne, and figure it out, all right? So he's attractive, right? He is attractive, she wants him. She wants to move towards him. She desires him to move towards her. But here's the thing. As clear as she is on, the, on his attract, uh, attractiveness and his physical appeal, right? He smells nice. I want him to kiss me. She's physically attracted to him. As much as I enjoy all of that, right, there's something more profound that she says immediately after that, and that's the second way to being the man of her dreams. Number two, not only work on your physical appearance. Number two, work on your character, Look at 3B. She says, your name is oil poured out. Therefore, the virgins love you. Now, just to get this cleared up and out of our minds, virgins here, think young women, right? Think all the girls want him. Why? Because his name is like oil poured out. Now, that doesn't immediately for us go like, yay, his name's like oil poured out. We have to understand what's meant. Name was a stand-in for character, the entire character of a person. Not only his personality, but more specifically, his internal character, who he was as a man, okay? So what is she saying? Your name is oil poured out. In this culture, name, again, it's synonymous with character. What she's saying is integrity matters more than image. 
It's not that image doesn't matter. It's that integrity matters more. And in our Instagram, Insta-famous world where everybody's obsessed with social media and everybody's got a perfect profile that's got tons of clicks and tons of likes and all that sort of stuff, none of that matters if you're not a man of character. You need to be a man of character. Better is a name than great riches is what scripture tells us. And in this social media-driven crazy culture where image is everything, what matters most in attraction to a high-quality, high-value woman is a high-quality, high-value man who's filled with character. Bottom line, the foundation of a relationship is the character of the man in the relationship. And here's the thing. If you think about, if you think about the, just the biblical trajectory of where this goes, why is it that our love for Christ is so great? It's because he's perfect. His character is perfect. You want a humble leader, he's perfect as a humble leader. You want someone who's gentle but all-powerful, his name's Jesus. Character is the foundation of a quality relationship. And so guys, your character matters the most, all right? And character, here's the thing, character is developed. It's developed. It's not instant. You can't just go buy character in bulk at Costco and like dump it in a vat and drink it tonight. That's not how it works, right? Characters developed over time and through hardships, through events. Physical attraction is important, but character is what matters the most. You can be the most physically attractive guy, but you can have such little character that you won't be impressive at all. The sexiest thing that a dude can be is godly, filled with character, okay? So here's the thing, guys, what we got to understand about oil in this time is they would, again, it would take a ton of time and a lot of effort to gather all the olives together that would go into a press and the press would put a lot of pressure on all these olives. And what would it extract? Olive oil. Okay. And the quality of the oil was determined specifically by all of that, the soil that the, that the olives came up in, right? It takes time, it takes seasons to develop the kind of character for your name, your character to be associated with being that which is worthy, character-filled. So, so here's the thing you got to think about, guys. If it takes time and it takes testing, you can't just get it overnight. All of the pressure, all of the hardship, all of the work, all of the toil, how you act through all of those seasons of life is where your character comes from. It, character is on the other side of the trial, of the testing, and in order to be a man filled with character, you've got to go through testing. It doesn't come through ease and convenience. The, the, the world would lie to you and say, hey, listen, you want an easy life, right? No, you don't. You want to be a man that's filled with character, and that comes through trial. It comes through testing. It comes through discipline. That's where character is developed, right? If you think about the gym and, and working out, how do you develop muscle? You put it under pressure and under strain in order that it grows. And here's the thing I also want to say, guys, we're like pickup trucks, right? We're like pickup trucks. Pickup trucks run fine, right? If they don't have any heavy load in the back, but when weather gets rough, the pickup truck without any weight in the back gets really squirrely. So here's the thing. If you are not actually actively having a heavy load that you're pulling, you're failing to be the kind of man that's filled with character that, that make men, women want you. Be a man who's filled with character. Time effort, trial, testing, seasons. If you want a high-value woman, you've got to be a high-value man, and that comes through character development. Conversely, for gals, you don't want a guy who's only ever had ease and convenience and things handed to them and gifted to them their entire life. You want guys who have actually been tested. You've seen them over time and over seasons, and you've seen their character develop, okay? Okay. 
got to ask yourself questions like this. Gals, right? If she is able to look and sing and to say, your name is oil poured out. Your name is oil poured out and everybody around knows it and they all desire that. It's because his character has been brought to a place where everybody recognizes his character. So here's the thing. You got to ask yourself these questions. How does he treat the women in his life? How does, how does the guy that you're interested in treat the women in his life? How does he treat his mom? If he's, if he's short and rude to his mom, guess what you can expect in your relationship and in your marriage? He's going to be short and rude with you. He might not be able to put a nice face on now, but eventually that character trait will come out. So you need to watch it. This is what you need to be witnessing in order for you to desire to pers- for someone to pursue you. you got to recognize his character. How does he act when he gets stressed? What angers him? How, do, how does he act outwardly towards authority? How does he act in private? When you're thinking about a guy that you're interested in, watch his character over time. This is why parents warn young people not to rush into relationships, right? Wise men say only fools rush in. That's how the song goes, right? Character is what needs to be worked on. You not only work, work on your physical appearance, fellas, but you also need to work on your character because integrity matters the most. Number three, listen and lead. Look at verse four with me. Listen and lead. It comes right here in verse four, and it might shock us a little bit. She says to him, draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Now, there's a few things that we need to break down from from this, but here's the thing. You need to listen and you need to lead. Now, that might shock us a little bit. We come from a complementarian church. We believe that men are the ones who are the head of the house and the head of the church. We believe that's biblical, okay? But Here, we see her call to him and say, draw me after you. She's saying, come and get me, big boy. It's okay to laugh, right? How dare you laugh in church? She's saying, come and get me. She desires to be pursued, all right? What should actually cause us to pause a little bit in regards to how we interact in relationship is that in the book of the Song of Solomon, The woman speaks 53% of the time. The majority of the time we hear is from the woman, okay? The husband speaks only 39% of the time, and the others, or the chorus, which we're going to look at in just a second, actually speaks the remainder. But notice that her voice here isn't directional, as in a command, it's invitational. Let us run. Draw me out. Draw me to your chambers. Let Let us go out together. It's invitational. It's not directional. And here's what we need to actually take from the second part of this. It says, again, listen and lead, all right? She says this, the king has brought me into his chambers. So so here's what I want to just challenge you with in your relationships, okay? Ladies, if you're using invitational language, you're already taking the first step in the right direction. If you're using demanding language, you're already misstepping. But here's where it gets even better. And here's the instruction point. Ladies, speak respectfully to the men in your life. Speak respectfully. She calls him king. And while we know that this probably refers to Solomon, most commentators note that this actually doesn't specifically need to. This can refer to anyone. That at many times in in this historical context, there would be, in a sense, a king and a queen at every marriage. That's the design. And she says, the king has drawn me. So women 
right? Desire pursuit, but notice the way that she gains pursuit is through clear communication that is respectful. She says, my king has drawn me into his chambers. This can be speaking in multiple ways, but it's clearly poetic language. Again, if your language towards your boyfriend who you are looking to marry or you are already engaged in in courtship, your husband, right? That person in your life, you have to treat him with your language like a king. And that is going to push against the grain of much of what I see happening in our culture today. There are many men who desire to be built up verbally and spoken to like a king. And so here's the invitation for some of the gals. Don't let any other woman speak to your man like he desires. That should come from you. Words of affirmation, clear lines of respect and encouragement. Most guys are beat down when they're failing, but rather what would it be like for a woman to build them up so they can live into what they are when they are succeeding. He should hear the most profound character affirmation from his bride when it comes to taking the lead. Draw me after you. Come and get me. The king, right? And here's the other thing. Guys, if you want to be the woman of her dreams, it isn't only that she has to speak respectfully to you, right? That's the invitation for the gals is that you do. But guys, you're called to pursue passionately, You're called to actually pick up on those cues. When she's using invitational language to draw you to a place of pursuit, the king actually goes, draws her, and takes takes her away into his chamber. Again, the chamber here is a poetic way of saying into the bedroom. Okay? Guys pursue passionately. Whereas gals are, are asked to speak respectfully, guys are to pursue passionately. This is him sweeping her off her feet and graciously and gently laying her in the place of intimacy. This is pure and unabashed romance. The chambers here, again, is poetic language. But, but here, here's the thing. She's like talking to him like, hey, draw me out. Draw me in. Come, let us run away. She's using language to try and get his attention. Right? Saying, hey, let's go off. Let's enjoy our, our relationship together. Right? And, uh, and guys, we're not always so keen on picking up, not only just from hints, but even clear communication we're really not good at getting a lot of the times. Right? So I'm going to use an image that I think will resonate with all of us in order to explain this interaction that happens a lot of times in relationships and in marriages. So go ahead and show this image up here. Right? Okay, this is what I'm talking about, all right? You got the ref here. If you're not laughing, then you didn't watch the game, all right? This guy, number 68, goes up to their head referee and says, hey, I'm reporting in order to, to be a, in order to catch the ball. He catches the two-point conversion and gets called back. Why? Because the referee's not paying attention. Now, my wife sent this to me, and I died laughing immediately, right? Because there's clearly communication going on And me, like the ref, is not hearing or listening to what my wife is saying. Guys, this can be us a lot of times, okay? So whereas gals are asked to to, to speak respectfully, guys, get a hint. Pursue passionately. Look, if you fail to pursue your wife in marriage, failure to pursue will always lead to a failure in passion. That's how that works. Failure to pursue will always lead to a failure in passion. Pursuit always precedes passion. If you stop pursuing it, passion will follow suit, okay? Be clear, ladies. Be respectful. But guys, we need to pick up the hint. If you want to be 
the man of her dreams. Number three, listen and lead. Number four, let others validate your relationship. Now, this one's a little bit controversial, I think. But look at verse, the, the middle of verse 4, 4b, where it says others. It says, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. There's that wine and love again, all right? Rightly do they love you. Here's what's going on here. Everyone around them in their relationship becomes like a chorus and a choir that's celebrating this marriage and celebrating this relationship. This is where I think we as Westerners, highly individualistic, really struggle and we undervalue the, the, the input of those in our lives, whether it's our friends or our siblings or our parents, right? This is a general, this is speaking generally, okay, to allow others who you trust to speak into your relationship and in your life. And, and if you undervalue that, you could actually end up selling your entire relationship short. short. So, one of the things that I find really, really um, interesting is statistically speaking, countries with arranged marriages only see a 6% of divorce rate on average. 6%. So they're not marrying, again, they're not marrying primarily out of physical attraction. They're not. They're, they're marrying based on the compatibility of what? The families and the relationships, and the context that they've grown up in, okay? What about us? In the West, where we marry almost purely based on physical attraction, there's a 55% divorce rate. I don't think we're doing this right, right? I'm not submitting to you that we should have arranged marriages, but what I am saying is we probably overvalue our own estimation and undervalue others' estimations of health in a relationship. When we overvalue our ability to make wise long-term decisions and we undervalue others' perspectives and input into our relationship, we could end up in a very bad place. Throughout this book, again, you're going to see that there's, there's this choral perspective. There's other people speaking into this relationship. It isn't that the others are participating in this relationship and getting involved and getting in between them. It's that they're giving their affirmation and praise to the relationship. Okay, so those who love you have a right to speak into uh, the value of that other person. And I think we know that intrinsically, but our culture is becoming less and less traditional in this sense. Less and less couples are bringing their significant others to meet their parents. More and more couples are actually cohabitating and living together before even mentioning anything to their parents, right? This is a trend that we see happening, and we almost see the opposite. There's less intimacy, there's less connectivity, there's less marriage overall. So when we think about becoming those who, who she desires, becoming the man that is most desirable, we have to be willing to invite and open up our relationship into other people's perspectives so we can actually gain access to understanding, am I making the right choice in a, in a spouse? Am I actually heading the right direction? Do you approve of this relationship? There are some outliers where there's lack of wisdom or godliness in friendships or even in family members. And those I would say you need to, hold, you need to take with a grain of salt, but it's really those who, who you trust and who you love that know the word of God and who are godly that you should allow to speak into your relationship rather than be, being so isolated and making the decision purely based on your own motives and motivation. Number five, understand insecurity. Understand insecurity. She again speaks, but this time she's not speaking about him. She's speaking about herself. And she says this, I am very dark, but lovely. She, she says that her skin 
has looked, the sun has looked upon her. Okay. What is she talking about here? Now, as a Hawaiian dude who can get pretty dark in the summer, I'm like, yo, what are you talking about? Being dark is beautiful lady, you know, but I think we can misunderstand because of the culture, right? Cultural beauty in this timeline, someone who was outside working in the sun would have darker skin and therefore it was more of a social status, right? If you're working out in the sun, then you're working with your hands and therefore you're not inside and not working with your hands. So it had to do with a social status, right? It didn't have to do with race. It didn't have to do with ethnicity. And in fact, in our culture today, if you think about it, if somebody's got a really nice tan, right, you know they haven't been in Michigan in January, right? No, it's something that actually is seen as a positive, as something that is good in our culture when somebody actually goes and gets a tan at the beach. It's because of the way that cultures have shifted. So in order to understand this, there's not racist undertones inside of the scriptures. She's just saying that I am not what I would believe that other people would find attractive. That's what she's saying, right? It has to do with her insecurity of thinking whether or not she's actually beautiful, pretty, if, if she has sex appeal and is if she actually could draw somebody in. And so we actually see her. Uh, she has confidence in her beauty, but there's still an insecurity there. How do we know that? Because she says, I am very dark. So she states her insecurity up front. And then she says, but lovely. So there's an internal confidence, but she actually is trying to get it out there that, hey, I, don't, I know that I'm probably not what everybody else wants. Again, if she's working out in the vineyards, right? And she actually makes reference. She says, oh, daughters of Jerusalem. The first person that she makes this remark to isn't to the guy she's been talking to, it's to other women. So she states her insecurity up front. Why? If she's someone who's been working out in the country fields, and now she's speaking to city girls, she's wanting everybody to know that she doesn't have what everybody else would perceive to be beautiful. There's an insecurity that we see in this passage immediately. And I think how profound it is of God's word to speak generationally, to an issue that every single generation of women will ever deal with. Guys, if you want to be the man of her dreams, understand the insecurity there. Because what we're going to see next week is how he comes in to cover that insecurity. Okay, rather than to exploit it. She's downplaying her beauty and she really is truly searching for affirmation. What's interesting is I remember having a, um, a youth leader at one time and he hated what was called fishing. When somebody would say something negative about themselves in order for somebody else to say something positive about them. And I remember him making that remark and he would tease people who would fish for compliments. He would tease them. He would mock them. And what I find incredibly tragic is in his marriage, I think that he applied that same standard in his marriage because he's no longer married. And I do think, guys, that if you hear your gal fishing, she should have to not, not have to fish very far at all for you to actually cover that with a compliment rather than exploit that with a remark. She is bringing her insecurities to the forefront. Now, we don't know fully what the tents of Kedar looked like. We, we don't know what the curtains of Solomon looked like, but they clearly were dark and not exactly what everybody else would, would have as being desirable, okay? So she's saying, I'm dark. And then she even says, don't gaze at me. Don't look at me because why? Because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. When we understand the insecurities that exist within the heart of a woman, we have the ability, and we're going to see, like I said next week, how, we, how he covers that, okay? But here's the other thing. If you want to be the man of her dreams, you not only need to understand her insecurity, but you also need to understand her relationship with previous men and former men in her life, okay? Look at verse 6. It says, My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. So 
what she's saying is, the reason why I look the way that I look is because of the way that my mother's sons treated me. Because of the way that my mother's sons treated me. Now, there's, an inveri- there's a very important point to make on this. She doesn't use the word brothers. That's what we typically call my mother's sons, is my brothers. She is distancing the relationship because of the harsh treatment she underwent. Again, this is like a Cinderella story. They meet, he runs off, she's mistreated. And because of the mistreatment, she says, I've kept their vineyards out of anger. But she says, my own vineyard I have not kept. Here's the, here's the beautiful part. She's talking about a physical, actual vineyard, and then she's comparing that with her own body as a vineyard. Throughout this entire series and throughout this book, the body of a woman is going to be referred to as a vineyard or even as a garden. And there is a sacred nature to this. And this is where she is being very vulnerable and opening herself up. She's saying, I was forced and mistreated and that's the, way, that's the reason why I look like I do, but I've not been able to take care of myself. Again, there's an insecurity there, but she's referring to mistreatment at the hands of those who were supposed to be her protectors. Notice, too, her father's never mentioned. Not once. We can only speculate on the relationship, but what is clear is her brothers are not mentioned by name. They're mentioned by reference, and her father isn't mentioned at all. This is an important point to make because when we engage with a gal and we're looking towards future engagement, future marriage, it is important for us to recognize that during this time, we have to recognize we're not the first men in their lives. And we have to be aware of mistreatment, trauma, hardship that was brought their way. And we not only have to be informed on that, but we have to, have, have to be the exact opposite of that. John Mayer sang a song in the early 2000s that gets at this exact theme. In the song, he talks about how he's been open and vulnerable in his pursuit of this girl, but he comes to the realization that his inability to pursue her may not have anything to do with him. And then he says this in this song. He says, fathers, be good to your daughters. Daughters will love like you do. Girls become lovers who turn into mothers, so mothers be good to your daughters too. It's simple, but it's profound, and it's profound because it hits at the heart of interactions between men and women. When you have a father that treats you harshly, you're going to be more nervous about how you engage with a man. In order to be the man of her dreams, you have to understand her insecurities, and you also have to understand her previous relationships to men in order that you would go in, point to Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of what any man could ever be, and you live into the pattern in order to gain access to the sacred garden of the woman's heart and in her life for marital intimacy. Grace, I'm excited to continue to walk through this entire book. I'm excited not only to understand this guide, but I want us to really truly grapple with the truths that are so profound and have have the Bible actually shape our understanding of dating, relationships, intimacy, sexuality within the context of marriage. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have given it to us in order to guide us in all truth. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us the Song of Solomon as a book of excitement and of joy. And Lord, I just pray that as you guide our hearts, Lord, that you would provide healing, Lord, to those who have past wounds, that you would also, Lord, provide guidance, Lord, to those who look forward with hope. 
And Lord, I pray for those also, Lord, who, who have experienced and who have lived a life, Lord, that has been filled with biblical and appropriate relationships, Lord, who've perhaps gone through hardship and learned from that, Lord, that they would be willing to step in, to coach, to train, to teach, to encourage those who are younger in our body. We thank you, Lord, that as we approach the communion table, that you will guide our hearts, that we would know that we have a love that truly has come for us in you, Jesus. And it's in your mighty name we all said.